All right, good morning. I introduce myself. I'm Dave Lewis. Married for 19 years, four adopted kids. Uh, we live in New Kensington, Pennsylvania. And coming up on 10 years, which is crazy, uh, the elders of Abiding Grace ordained me as a pastor slash elder to do church planning in New Kensington. And God had other plans. That church plant didn't end up working out because of, it was just too much to handle at the time. Um, but we do ministry in New Kensington, some of you know Sunward. And, um, you know, I'm very grateful for this church. Uh, we attend a church in New Kensington just for the sake of doing ministry there, uh, you know, because it's close to where we're in the thick of it. We intentionally bought a home in a bad, crime-ridden part of New Kensington. By the way, there's nice $20,000 homes there, real big ones, <laughs> if you want to live in a crime-ridden area. But anyway, just a little pitch for that. But, uh, you know, I just want to say that um, I'm eternally thankful to Pastor Mike back there, Steve, Scott, all the elders here. Um, and I'll mention it a little bit in my sermon, but I've went through a very difficult time in my life losing a job. And they were there for me every step of the way and continue to be there. So you guys have found your way to a very blessed church with men of God who actually will care about what's going on in your life. I've been in many churches where they don't. They'll, they'll say they will. You know, yeah, let me know how it's going. But Mike will actually call me proactively and say, how you doing, man? What's going on? And he knows what's going on and he's praying. And, uh, Stephen Scott and everyone here is the same way. So I just want to say that before I start. So uh, I've been given the privilege of stepping into the sermon series on the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have your Bible, we'll, we'll go to Matthew 13 and look at the two parables. And another thing that's blessed about this church is there's not a lot of churches where you have two verse-by-verse verse sermon series running simultaneously and have the pastors who have the capability to do that. So that's pretty cool, too, because you've got Mike going through 1 Corinthians and you've got... Stephen Scott going through through Matthew. So these parables are in a context. So we're going to look today at the parable of the treasure hidden in the field and the pearl of great price. Now there's eight parables in this context in Matthew. Okay, and Matthew groups them all together and calls them the parables of the kingdom. So the eight parables each tell a different aspect of what the kingdom of God is. Okay, the parable of the sower, which Steve preached on that speaks of the different responses to the kingdom so the word of the gospel the word of god will go out and there will be four different responses that happen in the parts of the people that hear it okay the next one is the parable of the weeds that means that god's kingdom there's going to be responses but those responses positive and negative are going to coexist until the end of the age there's always going to be satan's kingdom and there's going to be god's kingdom fighting each other Right? The parable of the mustard seed speaks about how the kingdom starts small and grows into something bigger. The kingdom of God is not this gigantic revolution that just happens in 24 hours. It's going to start small and it's going to grow. The parable of yeast talks about how the kingdom of God spreads invisibly. Okay? It's not this visible thing usually how God builds his kingdom. It's in the hearts of his people. Okay? And then we're at the parable of the treasure. Okay? This talks about the kingdom comes by people finding it or stumbling upon it. We're going to talk about that. And then we have the parable of the pearl 
This is how the kingdom comes by. Other people will search for it until they find it. So you have stumbling upon it and then searching for it. And then finally, which, you know, I'll give Steve and Scott a bunch of sermon prep because I'm going to, you know, do do some stuff for them here and save them some time. Uh, The parable of the net talks about how the kingdom will eventually, unlike the parable of the weeds, where the owner says, do not separate the wheat from the tares, right? There will be a time of separation, a great net that will sweep everything into it, and there will be a separation. And then, of course, finally, it's wrapped up by the kingdom of heaven. The one who is the steward of the kingdom of heaven has an understanding of treasures old and new. So that, I mean, I don't know if that's technically a parable, but a lot of the commentaries said it is technically part of the, it's an eighth like thing, a, a, a word picture. Now... Let's look at the treasure and the pearl in their historical context first. Okay, so first, we're going to talk about the treasure hidden in the field. Let's read it again real quick. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Now, in ancient times, there were no banks, right? And there's, it's, not, it's not a cash-based society. So therefore, for the average person, almost all of their wealth, All of their wealth would have been kept in the form of various personal belongings, jewels, coins, gold, and silver. Right? You didn't have a pocket full of cash or a debit card back then. If you wanted to save money and have wealth, it would be in the form of treasures, physical possessions, okay? And they were on the gold standard back then too, right? If you had a gold coin, it it was a gold coin, okay? Now... To keep things from being stolen, they also didn't have safety deposit boxes. Or some of you have a safe in your house that no one could really steal if they wanted to from you. Someone broke in your house, they'd come across a super awesome safe that you can't break into. They didn't have those either. Okay, So what would people do? They would take their treasure and they would hide them in a field. Right? They'd find a place in the middle of nowhere, go, go at night so no one could see them, and hide their treasures there. And then they would go at night to take what they needed or maybe put some more there. Here's another interesting thing about treasures hidden in the field, though. Many times, they were hidden in desperation due to war. <clears throat> so let's say a foreign army's coming in, and they, you, they, you know they're going to burn your house down. You take as many valuables as you can and you take off. Like people would find furniture. I mean, archaeologists have found these. What's the explanation for this chair and this thing being found? It was because it was buried in desperation due to war. And it was actually very likely that if you stumbled upon someone's treasure hidden in a field, that person's probably dead. (laughs) The person who that treasure belonged to probably died long ago and you stumbled upon it. And that's where we connect this to Jesus. Because what we're going to see is Jesus is the treasure, obviously. That's Sunday School 101. Who's the treasure, little boy? Jesus. Yes, correct. But the treasure... Can someone give me a thing of water? I'm going to need some water. Listen to this scripture. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Though Jesus was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. So more of this in a second. Now, a lot of the commentators make a big deal about why didn't the guy who found the treasure, because you think like he stumbles upon the treasure, but he doesn't tell the owner of the field that he found the treasure. He like takes off and like the commentators spent way too much time on this in my opinion. They're like, well, this seems like a moral 
Like, wouldn't that be immoral? If you, like, found a huge treasure buried in someone's land, and you, like, took off, and you, like, bought his property for pennies on the dollar, knowing that, like, there was, like, a gas well on the property or something, and they didn't know it, right? Like, there's this gas well worth millions of dollars, and I know it, and I'm going to buy your property for nothing, and I know I'm going to make millions off of this gas well. Well, the commentators spent way too much time on this because I think they didn't see that this is really talking about Christ and how he brings the kingdom. Because why doesn't he just take the treasure? No one would be the wiser, right? Why does he cover it back up, rehide it, go sell everything he has? Why didn't he tell the owner of the field about the treasure? Well, what we're going to see is Jesus did all of these things. Jesus' cross and resurrection is the interpretive key to everything. So Jesus is the treasure. The disciples, the 12 disciples, will acknowledge that Jesus is the treasure. They will call him the Messiah. They will even worship him. But Jesus is both the treasure and he's the one who hides it again, sells all he has to buy the field. Let me show you that. Jesus is actually the one in the parable who does the actions. We're going to see this. Peter, James, and John will even see Jesus transfigured. The greatest treasure, the glory of God shining through Jesus. Jesus is the treasure that is he, and he has been found by the disciples, right? He's called them to follow him. They found him. He's the Messiah. But what happens? Jesus hides the treasure again. The treasure of his glory and majesty. And he goes off and sells all he has. He hides his glory and power from the religious leaders. Even though they demanded of him as he's hanging on the cross. They demand. Show us that you are the treasure. Come down from the cross. He hides it. I'm getting ahead of myself. When Satan tempted Jesus... What did he tempt Jesus to do? He tempted Jesus to take the treasure without selling all he had. He said, all this I will give you if you bow down and worship me. He tempted Jesus to grab the treasure without paying the cost. And the apostles, many of them, because this is what they were told by the rabbis, by the Pharisees, by the religious leaders, and by many, and these aren't ungodly men who had this expectation in Jewish times, that the Messiah would come and take the kingdom by force to grab all the treasure with ha- having to sell everything. But he didn't do that either. He didn't have a military campaign. He sold all that he had. He gave his very life. He, by virtue of his death and the power of his resurrection, he buys the field. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He has the field. He owns it. That's, I, I made that connection preparing for this sermon. Now, so first of all, the first parable, the treasure, is the kingdom being stumbled upon. This is my testimony. I did not, I mean, I grew up in church somewhat, but it was inconsistent. And then by the time I was like in early high school, we didn't really go to church anymore. Because of, of me, I was rebellious. Like, you're not going to, if you drag me to church, I'm going to make your life miserable. Anyone, <laughs> anyone can relate. Uh, 
No supposed to be a joke, but some people, maybe that's what you're going through. <laughs> maybe that's what you're actually going through. I'm sorry. <clears throat> but I stumbled upon the kingdom. Okay, I, I came to Christ kicking and screaming, getting arrested, going to jail. I, can, I don't have time to get in my whole testimony, but basically it came upon me. Okay, and that's how many people come to Christ. Okay. We were wandering in sin and bondage, loving this world, our fleshly desires, when out of nowhere the treasure of Christ and his kingdom came to us. The Apostle Paul is also a good example of this. And actually the 12 disciples are also somewhat like this too. Jesus just came up to them and said, follow me. They stumbled upon the treasure. Here he is. Come follow me. Be my disciples. But notice again, now let's look at the next parable. The treasure is being stumbled upon, but the pearls are being what? searched for okay again the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls so this person isn't stumbling upon upon fine pearls they're searching for them okay when on finding one pearl of great value he went and sold all he had and bought it (laughs) now let me read you this as i was doing a google search which is how you get all accurate information correct (laughs) no that's a that's a left-wing conspiracy google but anyway Forbes.com, which is pretty reputable, right? But I I confirm this. It seems true. Um, In 2006, a Filipino fisherman made an amazing discovery in the sea off the coast of the Palawan Island, Philippines. A two-foot-long pearl inside a giant clam. He took it home and hid it under his bed. I thought that was an interesting part of the story, if that's true. He took the pearl home and just hid it under his bed. Keeping it as a good luck charm. Recently, in 2016, his tiny home burned down. But the 75-pound pearl survived. The pearl has been verified at 26 inches in length, 12 inches in diameter, weighing nearly 75 pounds. It's valued at $100 million. It's the most valuable pearl in existence. A $100 million pearl, right? That's pretty crazy, right? So if you think pearls aren't worth anything, anyone own pearls? They're not cheap. Like real, actual. Now, of course, there's manufactured pearls. Like, there's like farms. You know, anyone, anyone pro animal rights, you know, these poor, these poor oysters are just in captivity producing pearls. <laughs> anyway, because there's natural pearls and then there's manufactured ones and stuff like this. But the average cost of a typical pearl can range from 300 to $1,500 per pearl, like on a pearl necklace. Depending on the type, wild or cultured, size, surface. And then let me read, this is kind of a lengthy quote, but I thought it was interesting. This is from MacArthur's commentary on pearls, on this parable. He says, pearls were the most highly valued gems in the ancient world and were often bought as investments, much as diamonds are today. And that's, that's a good modern equivalent. Like diamonds are the modern day equivalent of pearls. Like a lot of people, that's, they like to have valuable diamonds. And like in, in like movies, like what the bad guys always paying in a little sack of diamonds. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, yeah, well. Got this sack of diamond anyway. In the form of pearls, a great amount of wealth could be kept in a small space concealed in one's clothing while traveling or buried in a field for safekeeping, as was the treasure of previous parable. The Jewish Talmud spoke of pearls as being beyond price, and some Egyptians and Romans held the pearl in such awe that they worshipped it. Adorning their heads with gold or pearls apparently was a common practice among both Jewish and Gentile women. 1 Timothy 2.9, where Paul talks about don't, don't adorn yourself with, with pearls. 
When Jesus warned against believers casting their pearls before swine, Matthew 7, 6, he was emphasizing the priceless value of the gospel and its attendant truths which unbelievers disdain as worthless. In John's vision of the new Jerusalem, the city had 12 pearl gates and each of the gates was a single pearl. Remember the pearly gates? We don't really say that anymore, do we? The pearly gates. It was reported that the wife of the Roman Emperor Caligula often wore a vast fortune of pearls in her hair and on her ears, neck, wrists, and fingers. Cleopatra is said to have owned two extremely valuable pearls, each of which would have been worth several million dollars in today's market. Listen to this one. When an extravagant ruler wanted to flaunt his wealth, he would sometimes dissolve a pearl in vinegar and drink it with his wine. So if he wanted to show off, look how wealthy I am, just put a bunch of pearls in, dissolve them, and drink them. So just the point, pearls were very valuable in Jesus' day. It would be like a great giant diamond that you find. So in this parable, this pearl of great price is so valuable that the merchant goes and sells all the lesser pearls he has found in order to have this one pearl. This is very important. And, and as is the custom that I forgot, Mike always says what the sermon title is before he starts. The sermon title is The Treasure and Our Pearls. Okay? So we're collecting pearls. So I'm collecting them. But then I come across this one pearl that's way more valuable than all these other pearls I'm collecting. And I sell them all to have that one pearl. The 12 disciples fit this description. They leave all they have to follow Jesus and they're with him. And they are searching for what the kingdom of heaven is. And by the way, this is the constant theme in all four gospels. What is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God? What is the expectation of various groups of what it's supposed to be? And what does it end up being? Okay. They, okay. Now imagine being one of the 12 disciples. Imagine that you followed Jesus for three years. What have you watched him, witnessed him do? You have literally watched him show that he has power over every category of things that cause us affliction and sorrow even in our lives today. Everyone. He has shown that he has power over Satan and the demonic. They are so frightened of him when he shows up. They're quaking in their boots like he's going to throw them into hell right at that moment. He has ultimate authority over the demonic world, which, by the way, our culture does not, by and large, believe. There's even been surveys among born-again Christians. Do you believe in Satan? And like half of them say no. what What is going on? The reality of evil and forces of wickedness that are real in our world. Jesus has power over them. What else does he have power over? Every sickness. Can you imagine? Right? Many of us struggle with sickness or a loved one. And Jesus could just touch someone with cancer and they would be instantly healed. He had the power over that. He had the power over hunger. Jesus could have ended world hunger. I mean, what the heck, Jesus? Why don't you just chill and just make bread forever? Just set up shop and feed everyone. Remember, he fed 5,000 with a couple loaves. He could end world hunger. He had power over natural disasters. Any hurricane, Jesus could have just said, be still, and the hurricane would have dissolved. And, of course, he had power over death itself which is our ultimate problem, is we will all die. He could even fix that. 
But as the disciples will learn and what we must learn, what we must learn in our own discipleship process, this is not what the kingdom of God is about right now. It is not, Jesus has not come to deliver you in this life. He did not come to take away all those afflictions from you. Now, if you were one of the disciples following him, you would have said, this dude is it. How could this not be the Messiah? And how is he not going to just take this whole thing over? This has to be the king, the Davidic king that was promised. He has power over everything. But that's not what Jesus came to do. And listen, beloved, if you do not understand that that is not Jesus's will for you is to preserve and protect you from all the afflictions of this life, you will not be able to cope and endure what happens to you in this life. You know how many people are former Christians and the reason they're former Christians is because they were sold a bill of goods by the churches that said, listen, come to Jesus and your life will be amazing. You know, I'm going to make fun of Mike a little bit because I know he can take it, you know, you know, and it's usually the pearly white teeth, good looking pastor guy who's like, look how wonderful my life is. I don't think Mike would ever claim that. (laughs) Wow, my jokes are falling flat. (laughs) If I can get Steve to laugh, it's a good joke. I tell you. If I can get Steve to laugh at it. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Thank you, thank you. My jokes need to be stronger. Gotcha. But the point is, if you're sold that bill of goods, that if you come to Jesus and become his disciple, that you will have less problems than unbelievers, what happens when those problems start happening to you? You will fall away. And Jesus tells a parable about that, doesn't he? That is not what it is. The kingdom is not that. But that's what the disciples thought it was. So we are like the disciples. We have to discover, like they did, the hard way, what the kingdom of God actually is. So each time, imagine, each time one of these miracles happens, it's like a pearl that the disciples must have collected into their Memory and their expectation. Oh, he's, he's got power over this. He's got power over that. He's got, oh, oh, collect, pearl, pearl, pearl. This has got to be it. But what ends up happening? They learn that the greatest pearl, the pearl of great price is not what's going to happen to them in this life. It is the suffering, humility, obedience of the son of God to atone for their sins. That's, that's number one. That's primary. Jesus came to atone for our sins. What's the contrast to this among the disciples? Judas Iscariot, of course. Judas, the betrayer, if you remember this, I got to move too. I'm, I'm, I'm only on page four of 11. I got to get going here. <clears throat> this is the first time I've preached in like four months. So you got to give me a break. I used to preach like every week for years. Okay. <clears throat> But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, this is John 12, who would later betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. So just to make it quick, this is when the perfume was poured upon Jesus for his burial. And Judas got upset about it in the Gospel of John because this could have been cashed in for money. In Mark's Gospel, Mark actually connects that incident directly to Judas's betrayal. 
I think what Mark, John doesn't do it this way, but Mark does it because Mark says, then Judas went out to betray Jesus to them. What's the then? Right after that story. It, it was like Judas was sick of it. He's like, I'm so sick of this. This is supposed to be an earthly kingdom and we're supposed to like have all this money and this is happening. I'm out of here. And he goes and does what? Agrees to get some money from the chief priests. <clears throat> what an enormous temptation we face. When it comes to money, mammon, and the kingdom of God, especially in this country, we have so much wealth in the form of money, jobs, opportunities, standard of living. When we are called to follow Christ in his way and the establishment of his kingdom, will our love of mammon make us hesitate, beloved? Will we hesitate to do what God's called us to do because we don't want to lose money? We don't want to, we are, we're afraid of what others can do to us, so we stay silent. Do we speak out against injustice or sin or do we not because we're worried about money or status? Now, follow me here. Everything in the four Gospels must be read in light of the ending. So when you're reading Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, you always got to remember. It's kind of like a story where you have to have the ending in view as you're reading it. Because nothing you're reading is going to make sense until you see it's all driving toward the death and resurrection of Christ. So I want to show you something here. I had Scott read Matthew 16, if you want to turn there. Because I wanted to make the connection between Jesus and the treasure and Peter's confession of Christ in that whole story. So in verse 13 and 19, if you know the story... Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And they say, you're the Messiah, right? That is Peter finding, he's confessing the pearl, the treasure, who is Jesus Christ. He's found it. Now, of course, Jesus says, my father is the one who revealed this to you, Simon. But he's found it. He's found the treasure hidden in the field. He's found the pearl of great price and the mission of the church which is, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. What a great treasure. But then what does Jesus say in verse 20? <coughs> Don't tell anyone that I'm the Messiah. <laughs> What's that go back to? Cover it up. You know, you know I, this, doing this sermon prep, you know, everyone's always talking about, why, why did Jesus tell people not to tell people he was the Messiah? This is why. It's not the time. He doesn't, he isn't purchasing the field yet. He hasn't purchased it yet. Hide it. Hide the treasure. Don't tell anyone. Then what happens? Then Jesus says, verse 21, he's about to be killed. Right? He says that. He says, then he says, he said to the disciples, he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. What does Jesus have to do? So, Peter finds the treasure, he confesses him to Christ. Jesus says, hide it. Then Jesus says, I'm going to have to go off to Jerusalem and I'm going to have to sell everything I have to get that field. And of course, Peter, what's Peter's response to that classically? No. Peter was collecting the lesser pearls. Peter's like, no, 
that won't happen to you, Jesus. You're the Messiah. The Messiah is not supposed to suffer and die and be arrested. Remember, Peter couldn't, Peter like pulled his sword when they were putting the cuffs on Jesus. He's like, no, 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 no. This is not happening. This is not what's supposed to happen. So Jesus, and then what's this have to do with the leaven of the Pharisees and the yeast that goes on in all this? Then Jesus explains, after he rebukes Peter and says, you don't know what you're talking about, Peter. You have in things to mind Satan's desires and man's desires, not the kingdom of God. Jesus then explains the value of life is worth selling all you have, which is what Jesus is about to do. And then, of course, the transfiguration. You got to go. That's the next part. You read this stuff later. Then Jesus, and Jesus says, you're going to see the kingdom, some of you. You won't taste death before you see the kingdom. Then he goes up and is transfigured this glory. And what does Jesus say to the disciples after they have that experience, just Peter, James, and John, as they're coming back down from the mountain? What does he say to them? Don't tell anyone. There we go again. Cover the treasure. Don't tell anyone about it. The full possession display of the treasure is not till after the resurrection is the point. And then, of course, Jesus standing before Pilate. So we're talking about the kingdom. What's the kingdom? My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus says to Pilate. If it were, my disciples would fight to prevent my arrest. Thinking that this is very important for some of you. Some of you younger men, I'm speaking to you because if you go online, you're going to start seeing some really bad stuff going on in the reform world right now among young men. Okay? Thinking that the treasure and the pearl is a kingdom that can be created on this earth through force is to deny everything Jesus taught. Okay? Pilate was amazed that Jesus would not defend himself, if you remember the story. Pilate's like, why don't you defend yourself, man? I can get you out of this. I'm the political power here. Of course, Pilate represents political power. And even in our present day, we still see that all political power proceeds on the basis that the kingdom of God can be brought about in the world by force of law. Anyone watch the Republican debate? Did anyone who claims they're Christian up there take fire? Except Mike Pence. I like Mike Pence. He'll at least talk about Christ and his conversion, which I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. But does anyone get up there and say, you know what the problem with our country is? People need to repent of their sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. None of the politicians are peddling that, are they? And by the way, Google Abraham Lincoln's prayers. That man was a Christian. He talked about national repentance and national sin and God's judgment. It's unbelievable. So there did used to be politicians like that. They're not, no longer. Now there's a growing movement. Let me just take a moment to explain this. In the reform camp called Christian Nationalists. They believe that the problem with our nation is that we have failed to enforce biblical morality on the populace through legislation. Some of them even hold, I'm not making this up. It's, it's called X now. It was called Twitter. Don't know why I changed the name, but Twitter. If you're not on Twitter, don't go on Twitter. It's, it's good for your mental health. That's why I got so many issues. Now, <coughs> some of them say, there was this one guy, he put out a tweet. You know what he said? We should repeal women's right to vote. And he meant it. He said, it should just be households that vote. Women shouldn't be able to vote anymore. I'm like, this is what these dudes are about. He, and then, like, all his buddies piled on, like, yeah, that's true. They got their beards, and they, you know, we're, we're reformed. You know, I'm like, dang. 
Some of them even hold that we should publicly punish blasphemers who have false doctrine. Not making that up. There's this guy named Stephen Wolf. He came out with this book called Case for Christian Nationalism. He's associated with Doug Wilson. <laughs> Doug Wilson. And uh, there's a little shot, Steve. Um, but he says that he's like, we should punish blasphemers. We should make everyone confess Christian doctrine publicly. And if they don't, we should put them in jail. Like, and then if he, if he gets called on, he's like, well, not necessarily, but he won't debate it. Like, I'd love to see him debate James White. He would get, he would have to admit all that stuff. <laughs> and new, newest thing, this has been like in the last two months, you should only marry someone of your own race. These are reformed guys who say that you shouldn't marry outside your race. That's bad. It's not of God. So just warning you, this is all garbage. It's all garbage. These are very real people who lurk online. They have very cult-like churches. They were fanboys of Mark Driscoll in their late teens and early 20s. Now the fruit is becoming mature. It's the Christian form of the manosphere. Anyone know what the manosphere is? That's all these men who are macho and have YouTube channels about how to be a man. This is just the Christian reformed form of that. And they believe that we are all headed toward a catastrophic, cataclysmic fall of culture. And what will rise from the ashes is a post-millennial theonomic kingdom that will be ruled over by them. Stay away from them. Now, back to that. That was a little side issue. Jesus on the cross. Now, the, what did the Pharisees demand of Jesus? They said, come down from the cross. I said this earlier and prove who you are. They demand that he produce the treasure without having to sell it. But Jesus hides the treasure on who he truly is in order to accomplish the will of his father to bring about the kingdom. And remember, what's the sign hanging over Jesus' head on the cross? This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And they even try to get them to take that sign down. And Pilate says, nope, I wrote it. That's what's staying there. What's the kingdom of God and how does it come? Here's how the kingdom of God comes, ladies and gentlemen. Through the death of the son of God, through the son being obedient to death, even death on the cross. And listen to me. If there was anyone who ever walked planet earth who deserved all the blessings of the Mosaic law in Deuteronomy 28, it was this man, Jesus. He deserved all of it. He deserved life eternal, blessings, respect, obedience of the nations, wealth, health. He deserved every blessing of Deuteronomy 28. And what did he do with those deserved blessings? He took them and gave them up in order to atone for our sins and bring about the kingdom in the way that his father told him to. He had the power, not only as a man, because he was a perfect covenant keeper, he also had the power as God to justly end the lives of those who are mocking him on the cross. He had the power to just off these people. He didn't just, he didn't empty himself and he was some helpless human being standing there. He was actually, God in the flesh had the power to end his enemies and he didn't. How much... Are you and me like the disciples of Jesus? How many of us expect that Jesus and his will for us is to give us the treasure without having to give everything he owns? What's your expectation of the kingdom, beloved? Are we like the disciples before the death and resurrection of Jesus and even after his resurrection? Remember when Jesus restored Peter on the beach in John? 
And Jesus, by his power, causes them to do this massive catch of fish. And the fish get dragged to the shore, and Peter swims to Jesus and all that. And what is Jesus? And I didn't notice this for years. For years. I've read this passage a million times. Jesus says to Peter, do you love me more than these? What's he talking about? Do you love me more than that pile of fish and that fishing equipment that you own? Do you love me more than, now this is what's interesting about it too, sometimes Jesus will bless us financially and materially simply to turn around and challenge us as to our love of those things compared to him. Don't you ever think that if God blesses you financially, that he's doing that just for the sake of blessing you financially? There's many times where he will do that and then just turn around and go, hang on. Yeah, it's good to have blessings, isn't it? But do you love me more than these? And he'll do something to jeopardize those blessings. All right, I'm wrapping up. Okay, I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. 36 minutes. I can go another hour and a half. Is that what that means? Okay. <laughs> cool. Cool. You heard, it from, you, heard it, you heard it with your own ears. All right. What are the fine pearls we're in search of? What do we try to collect that we think has value in this world? But in comparison to the pearl of great price, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is king, it's nothing. Are we willing to sell all these pearls we've collected in order to purchase the one pearl of great value? Beloved, if you're a believer, this is the continual work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Whether we hear it or not, whether we receive it or not, it doesn't put our salvation in jeopardy. I'm as Calvinistic as I've ever been. But it will cause you to have a nagging sense of regret. What am I willing to sell to keep the kingdom going? This is what the Spirit's going to do. It's going to nag at you. Okay, so let me say two things here. When we think of our own death, so, you know, eschatology, right? The second coming of Christ. We can have all kinds of debates about that. But you know what the second coming of Christ is going to be for every single one of us in this room for sure? When we die. That's the second coming, right? <laughs> we talk about when he comes back to earth, but the second coming for all of us that we know is going to happen for sure and the way that we know it's going to happen is we're all going to take our final breath and we're going to have a second coming of Christ. And Jesus is very clear what his demands are. Matthew 10, 37. He says, anyone who loves his father more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's a high demand, isn't it? That's high demand. Let me make a distinction here to help everyone. There's two categories of people and there's two categories of God's word. What are the two categories of people? There's unbelievers and there's believers. What are the two categories of God's word? The law and the gospel. So let me explain something. If someone is an unbeliever, even in this room or hears this recording later, the law of God to you, that word from Jesus, is a horrible threat of judgment because of the hard and impenitent heart. They refuse to admit they're sinners. God is holy and they're choosing to reject him and follow their own sinful heart. This call to follow Jesus and leave the world behind and suffer with him is ridiculous to an unbeliever. And sometimes they're upfront about how ridiculous it is and they just reject Jesus. They're just like, you Christians are crazy. 
This whole thing is ridiculous. It's a fairy tale. Other times, unbelievers outwardly appear to be disciples, but when persecution or suffering comes on account of being identified with Jesus, they fall away and show they were never disciples. Right? In the parable of the sower, we saw that. 1 Timothy 5.24, Paul says, The sin of some men are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sin of others trails behind them. And then, of course, 1 John 2.19, they went out from us because they were never of us. So the unbeliever, the unbeliever doesn't recognize the value of the treasure and the pearl. You're still wandering about seeking the treasures of the world and you're still gathering pearls that have no lasting value. The call to you is to realize that all you have gathered in this life will be burnt up by the judgment of God and your very soul will be demanded of you one day and you will be found guilty of sin and cast in the lake of fire. But to the unbeliever, the gospel of Jesus says that this same God offers mercy and grace to you now. He sent his son to die for unrepentant sinners. The kingdom of heaven is an offer to be reconciled to God and find a treasure of superior value to this world and what the world has to offer. This treasure is knowing your sins are forgiven. You are in a right relationship with the God of the universe, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has been reconciled to you. That's the call to the unbeliever. Now what about to the believer? What does this word from Jesus mean to the believer? If you're a believer today, and you've repented of your sins, and you've trusted in the work of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, this call of Christ should bring conviction to you this morning. You have discovered the great treasure and the pearl of great price. And you realize what the cost is. But are you convicted from time to time about how you're living? And something deep in your bones keeps calling you to take up your cross and follow. You continue to collect pearls that have no lasting value. And the Holy Spirit has been sometimes gently and sometimes loudly convicting you of this. So for me, God had to take something from me that I literally spent half my adult life finding my identity in. Working at Teen Challenge. Half my adult life. He took it from me so I could see he's the pearl of great price. And by the way, this is just how stubborn I am. And some of you wives can say amen to this. He had to do this in a drastic way to get my attention. Okay? Like my wife always says, why don't you just do the little things I say to you instead of me having to blow up on you? I don't know, dear. It's just something that's just how it is. <laughs> she took, but God took it away from me in a sudden way. I was too stubborn. So to get my attention, he had to smack me down and take it away from me. And then, you know, I, I thank God for my, you know, what, uh, 22 years of discipleship now. The minute I started trying to complain that I lost my job and had to go work another job where I made literally half the amount of money. I, if, if I even started complaining, the Holy Spirit was just like, dude, you think this is suffering? That's how God speaks to me. Maybe, maybe I need some help from the pastors. Dave, I don't know if you're hearing from me. But you call this suffering? You live in the United States of America, dude. You got a job like right away. And you can still pay your bills. Nevertheless, 
It was suffering for me to have that stripped from me instantly. I was collecting the pearls of position, reputation. Like to, to not introduce myself to you guys as the director of Teen Challenge was, was like weird. Because every other time I've preached here over the last, since this church has been planted, I've said that. And God just took it from me. I was so dependent on being praised by others. Oh, Pastor Dave, you're so wonderful of a teacher and a preacher. And God just ripped it from me. What's it for you? What is it in your life that if God suddenly took it away from you, it would cause you to question if he has value anymore? A career that you gain reputation, money, and status in? A home you've spent your lifetime and energy buying and fixing up and making it just the way you want it? Your child and their reputation and success in the eyes of others? Oh, that's a deep one. As a parent for long enough now, like, I'm always, what do people think about me as a parent? You know, if they think that I'm not a good parent, oh my gosh, my life is over. Which, by the way, everyone has their issues. I don't care where you live. A car? The American lifestyle of comfort, ease, fine foods, good health. Choosing to live apart from those different from you and you're on clay. What if God took that from you? Believer, I have news for you. God will take it from you. It's called death. God will take it from every single one of us. The question is, if you're blessed to have a deathbed experience, is everyone blessed to have a deathbed experience? No. People just die like that with no notice. But if you have a deathbed experience, will you be filled with regret Because you didn't voluntarily give up the things of this world to follow Christ on the way of the cross, the way of the kingdom. Will you be filled with regret? Because all the mammon and money you stored up for yourself will just be given to your children and family after your death. And they'll probably squander it anyway, according to Ecclesiastes, right? You store up all this money and where does it end up going? You don't know. What is God calling you to consider giving up in order to follow him in the way of the kingdom of heaven? What are the pearls that you have been collecting that have no value compared to the pearl of great price? What do you spend your time and energy doing that could be better spent in reading the word, in prayer, in fellowship with other believers, in evangelism, in giving to the poor? If this brings conviction to you, God is your father. Jesus is your elder brother and the spirit is your guide. He's forgiven you and will continue to forgive you. But don't live your life with regrets. Okay, it's a harsh call, but it's true. And actually, I don't want you to have to go through what I've been through and have it taken from me. And have it taken from you like it was from me. And realize this, finally. For many of us, don't, 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 don't hear me say that I don't believe that there's such a thing as mental illness and people need help with that. But... Many times, our anxiety and depression and other struggles like that are simply rooted in our unwillingness to give up these lesser pearls. Many times, we, 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 we torture ourselves emotionally because we're just so upset that this thing was taken from us. We're so upset that we can't enjoy this thing that we want to enjoy or we can't live this way we want to live. The cure to that is to just give it to the Lord and say, you know what, God, you took this from me. You give and you take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
And many times, too, I need to repent of some sins in my life or some sinful patterns that I'm unwilling to, to look at. Get counseling. Get advice from your pastors. Make a decision to walk the way of the cross and make progress in giving up these lesser pearls. So as you leave this morning, I ask you, what are some lesser pearls that you're searching for and collecting that have no value compared to the pearl of great price? And start thinking about your end. Start thinking about your death. We don't think about that in our culture. Don't think about the fact that there's going to be a time where everything we've accomplished, we're going to look back on it and what's going to have lasting value and what's just going to be burned up. And I'm just in a place in my walk with the Lord for the last three and a half months where I've really been thinking about that. You know, like, and the other thing, you know, I've, been, I've, I've realized is just because I was doing ministry, that doesn't make me any better of a Christian than anybody else. I literally thought like, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a director of a teen challenge. I'm a pastor. I'm more spiritual. I know I'm not. I'm no more spiritual than any one of you in here. You could do way more for the kingdom than me just working some secular job somewhere at a gas station. You could have way more impact for the kingdom than any pastor. That was, I, it was a blindness for me. I'm like, I didn't think I thought that way, but I did. And once God ripped it from me, now I'm seeing it. So much of my identity, so much of my value was rooted in that position that I had for 17 years. And I really think the Lord just said, okay, I've had enough. We're going to go a different direction here. And it's been very painful. But I thank God for it. And I'm just experiencing what the disciples had to experience, right? I thought the kingdom of God was one thing, and he said it's something else. And it usually has to do with suffering and loss and struggling. Let's pray. Almighty God, Father of all mercies, we, your unworthy servants, give you humble thanks for all your goodness and loving kindness to us and to all whom you have made. We bless you for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life. But above all, for your immeasurable love and the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. And we pray, give us such an awareness of your mercies that with truly thankful hearts we may show forth your praise not only with our lips, but in our lives by giving up ourselves to your service and by walking before you in holiness and righteousness all the days of our lives. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be honor and glory throughout all the ages. Amen.